The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is a special episode in which we're taking a look at an issue uh, that we've looked at before and we're going to continue to look at in-depth going forward, artificial intelligence and its impact on a wide variety of issues. In fact, sometimes I call artificial intelligence an everything issue because there is nothing it doesn't change. Uh, And in fact, one of the problems I think people have is that they zero in on one problem, one threat, one opportunity, and they don't see it more broadly. But today I want to look at one particular slice of this all uh, because I think we're going to feel it sooner rather than later. Uh, Recently, Freedom House has come out with a a study uh, called The Repressive Power of Artificial Intelligence, um, which is part of their look at the repression of information around the world each year. Um, And it it looks, uh, I think, for the first time in a new light, in a constructive light, at how artificial intelligence is being used um, by many nations around the world already. Um, as a force behind censorship and repression. Um, And we'll talk a little bit also about how artificial intelligence is used as a force to feed disinformation. We're joined today by two of the folks behind the study. Ali Funk is the Research Director for Technology and Democracy at Freedom House. Ali is an expert on human rights in the digital age. Welcome, Ali. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having us here. Well, we're very glad to have you. And Keon Vestenson is a senior research analyst for technology and democracy at Freedom House. Welcome, Keon. Thanks very much, David. Uh, So let me start with you, Ali, and maybe you can uh, do the honors of framing what you think the biggest takeaways are in terms of the artificial intelligence dimensions of this study. Happy to. So, uh, you know, this is the 13th year we've done this report. uh, And the 13th year we found the global internet freedom declined. Um, And what we really wanted to do is look at the ways in which artificial intelligence might be making this happen, might not be. 
And what we really found is how AI is exacerbating longstanding challenges of privacy, of free expression, of access to information, how it really can scale state power um, in a in a new and interesting way. Uh, so we zoom specifically in here on the ways in which AI is impacting disinformation, disinformation campaigns by states, but also how it is impacting censorship. And I think that latter part has actually not been studied that much and, and something that I find personally really interested in. Um, and we sort of closed the report with uh, this, this call to action about how we should think about regulating AI because we do think it can be used for good to actually protect human rights online and internet freedom and democracy. But we have to be really careful in how we do that um, to make sure we get the good out of it, but not not the bad. So, Guillaume, one of the things that I, I, I seem to recall from the study, and I read it a few days ago, was that there are a number of countries that have official mandates to use artificial intelligence to assist with censorship. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. And I want to take uh, maybe one big step back here before we dive into the, the deep details on, on AI and censorship um, to highlight one of our primary findings, which is that AI is exacerbating more conventional forms of digital control. So certainly when we talk about AI-assisted censorship and AI-enabled disinformation, those are really cutting-edge problems. Um, but those more conventional tactics of website blocks, internet shutdowns, um, even simply arresting people for expressing themselves online, those tactics are unfortunately thriving around the world. Now, um, when we look at the, the question of, of AI-enabled censorship, um, what we find is that advances in generative AI may prove to be something of a double-edged sword when it comes to authoritarian governments. Um, chatbots like ChatGPT could theoretically provide people in closed environments with sort of indirect access to uncensored information sources. So if you're someone who lives in a country where independent news outlets are blocked en masse, it may be actually possible to obtain information from those sources from the chatbots that have trawled up all of that sorts of information. But we've also found that some of the world's most technically advanced governments are responding out of that concern and seeking to impose all sorts of controls over chatbots themselves. So Chinese regulators, for example, have ordered technology companies to ensure that ChatGPT uh, is not accessible in their products. And the CCP is also seeking to assert control over the kinds of outputs that Chinese generative AI products are able to produce. So one of the things that strikes me about that, um, either one you can respond to this, is, uh, which is not directly relevant to your study, is if you censor the, the, the databases that your uh, chatbots can harvest or that your AI can use to feed its intelligence, it'll become dumber. In other words, you know, it, you know it, it, a, a closed society that seeks to block certain kinds of uh, debate, certain kinds of information, certain kinds of statistics, uh, is going to have AI that is not as high-functioning as that in an open society. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really interesting uh, question, and it, it actually also, to me, mirrors a lot of the debates around how these systems um, perpetuate discrimination and bias, because it really is about what data goes in, 
uh, and what data comes out. So if you're putting biased data in, you're going to have biased outcomes, just like if you're putting sensor data in, you're going to have a wonky little outputs. Um, there's this really great article, you know, our piece, we looked at this or our report looked at this a little bit, but there's this really great article in foreign affairs that came out last year called spirals of delusion. Um, and the authors really explore how AI is going to distort decision-making by authoritarians because of the way these systems, exactly what you just said of the way the systems, if they're trained on data that does not include um, criticism of the state or does not include information about religious diversity or gender diversity, um, its outputs are going to be limited. So it's going to actually give leaders, authoritarian leaders, problematic information about how their people uh, think or what they like or what they want. So it's a really great, really great article. I'd recommend reading it. It was in our uh, sort of literature review for this piece. And one of the things just, you know, connecting back to the question of censorship on chatbots that we found really interesting is that we were trying to test whether models that were coming out of authoritarian states uh, would answer certain politicized questions. So if you play around with ErnieBot, which which we had a lot of trouble doing because it requires a Chinese phone number, you have to have real name registration. It's a whole, it's a researcher's nightmare, to be honest. Um, but if you play around with ErnieBot based on different reports, you know, it won't answer questions on like Tiananmen Square or Xinjiang. Um, but we did get to play around with Yandex's uh, model called Alice. And we were trying to answer a host of questions. So things it would answer, it would answer who the French president is. It would answer who Russia's president is. It would even answer what is a democracy and which countries are a democracy and actually had democracies on the list. But it wouldn't, wouldn't answer things like who is Alexei Navalny? Who is Prigozhin? Um, you know, other sort of murkier questions. And, and what we came out of that is, you know, we, were, we couldn't find any regulatory limits on how Yandex uh, uses in their training model in the same way you, you have those regulatory constraints in China. Um, so we weren't sure if this was formalized restriction or is this a company because it's a Russian company, it is subject to really onerous regulation and could be at risk, uh, you know, getting clamped down by the government if it towed, you know, goes too far on certain lines. Or is it just simply that the training data they're using doesn't talk about certain issues. So it's self-censorship within the training data that's leading to uh, outcomes. So we don't really know what the output was, but I th or what the reasoning why Alice wouldn't answer these questions. But I think it goes back to your question of, um, you know, it, as these models get created more in authoritarian states, uh, what the outputs will probably or may likely reflect some of those censorship censorship controls in their input. Yeah, and their censorship. And there's just one thing, there's censorship and there's censorship. You can respond to what I'm going to say, too, but, uh, in the sense that um, those authoritarian states may be limited on political issues where they're going to censor it, um, but we may be limited on issues where we have privacy concerns and so forth. And so China can build a giant database of, of, of genome data and because it's going to say, you've got to give it up. And so they may have actually a better AI model or, you know, in areas where uh, they are more, you know, their their um, uh, their models are more omnivorous within the particular area versus what we may have, right? I mean, I mean, Ken, you were going to say something, so maybe it wasn't that, but I'm, I'm maybe yeah, maybe I'll just hop on that specifically. I guess hypothetically, I don't know. It's a it's an interesting thought experiment, but I would say 
I don't know if we actually know. I mean, part of the problem is it's super opaque on what the training data is. And, and no, we, we, we don't know. All I'm saying is yeah. I've, I've sat in on some conversations where people have said, oh, well, the Chinese are not going to be as good as we are on AI because of censorship. And the, and, the, and the answer to that is, yeah, maybe in some areas, but maybe in some areas they'll do better. So yeah, I mean, they have a robust tech sector. So uh, I think they're going to be pretty good at developing out some of these models. But Keon, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, so juicy. it's all good. I mean, it sounds like David's forecasting 23andMe's next pivot um, here in, in the States, at least. Uh, but listen, I think when it I comes sat, to- I'll tell you something. I sat in a meeting with somebody who said that they see the next big model for drug companies is we'll give you the insulin drug. We'll give you whatever you want. All you have to do, it's like Google, you give us back your data because we want the genomic data and, you know, the drugs are cheap. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the reality here is that, again, when we talk about AI, we're talking about an incredible set of technologies and potential use cases. It's really sprawling. And our research has been pretty constrained into looking at the information environment as well as a sort of surveillance context. But, you know, I think there's um, one storyline here that I really want to pull out is that, you know, Ali was speaking about Yandex and and about Ernie Bots, um, those sort of products that we see developed in these highly censored or highly uh, authoritarian contexts. These sorts of controls are making bad products. And it's really important for the private sector to understand that when you're developing these sorts of products under incredible constraints by authoritarians, or from training data that's um, sharply curtailed because of uh, censorship. Um, It's shaping uh, whether people are going to use your products. It's going to shape your bottom line about whether um, people actually want to engage with uh, ErnieBot, for example. Um, I'm picking on ErnieBot here because, uh, you know, it's had really slow adoption. Um, This product has been on the market for for a couple of months now. And, um, you know, the internet is rife with examples of Chinese people um, poking at ErnieBot and finding that it's insufficient at sort of even the baseline expectations for what a chatbot can do. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a good point. Uh, we could go on in a hundred directions. That's why I call AI and everything issue. But let me go back to one of the directions that was at the uh, heart of what you guys were doing, and that is the ability of AI to support disinformation efforts. Um, because, you know, we've, we've read a lot about this, you know, that they're there's been talk that you could use AI to create disinformation that's especially targeted to the end user. Um, uh, not to mention the, the facility with which it will have for making uh, deep fakes and other kinds of disinformation available. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think everybody's got a little bit of AI whiplash. You know, most, most, most people didn't know what it was last Thanksgiving. And now every article they read is about AI. I, I've talked to a professor at Harvard who teaches in this area, and his students brought him chatbot GPT at last Thanksgiving. And, you know, he changed the whole way he did his research model by April. And, and you know, so there's a, there's a lot going on in this area. But we've got an election in the United States next year. And in fact, uh, there are scores of elections going on around the world next year. And we know, for example that the Russians want to discredit democracy, want it not to function well because it supports their arguments. And so disinformation is a great way um, to do that. What are your perspectives on, on, on that dimension of it, starting with Ali and then Kian? 
So I think it's a great question. The way that we are thinking about the role of AI within disinformation and information integrity, I mean, first, I want to make it extremely clear, AI, it has been used for years within these campaigns and, and this processes. So, um, you know, I, I shudder a little bit when everyone is, you know, framing up, oh, look at this new problem. I'm like, it's it's been around, you know, not the use of chatbots, to be clear, but AI generally, whether it's use of bots or, you know, platform algorithms. So I think that's a really important um, framing because I think the way I like to think about generative AI and its role in disinformation is that it's this it's another tool that is in this broader toolbox of how to undermine trust and information. And the difference with this tool compared to other ones is that it creates, um, it makes the creation of disinformation a lot easier and cheaper. So it's about lowering the barrier to creation, but it doesn't do much about lowering the barrier of distribution of that information. So how we framed it in our essay is that here's a new tool, lowers the barrier of creation. And here are at least 47 different governments that we found of the 70 countries that we cover that have that there's some evidence that they um, use pro-government commentators to manipulate information online. So we expect those longstanding networks to increase their reliance on generative AI in the coming years. And we tried to do, a, you know, we did a bunch of research in where we are already seeing this, and we only found 16 countries. There's a bunch of reasons why, and we write in the essay, I won't bore listeners, about why that number was actually lower than we expected. Um, but of the examples we found, a lot of them were around elections. You know, there's one in Nigeria that um, it was a generated audio clip of an opposition figure claiming to rig balloting. And, you know, I think audio is particularly concerning because I, I think that's really hard to either fact check or, or see some of the if you look at an image, you can kind of look right now what's messed up with it. Audio, I think, is harder to do that. Um, and, you know, looking at 2024, over 50 different countries are heading to the polls. We've got countries now preparing for elections. Um, and I think it's it's going to be particularly concerning in countries that are already vulnerable to, you know, manipulated information. I feel like that's honestly most countries, at least in our study. Um, and I think it's deeply alarming. And the, pro- the main, you know, one of the main challenges is there's just not a silver bullet to solve it. And information integrity is such a longstanding societal issue. And so many people want the silver bullet of like, what are we supposed to do? And in reality, I don't think it's something that is necessarily solvable, but I do think we have a lot of tools to try to limit the impact. Go ahead, Ken. One one twist here um, is that, you know, we've documented these examples, uh, you know, where we have seen that generative AI was used to sow doubt or um, try to influence the online um, debate, but it's very hard to assess the impact. Um, and I think early signs are that um, this sorts of generative AI uh, enabled disinformation um, is limited by the same fundamental constraints that more conventional manipulation tactics have been. So, I mean, I, I'm sure your listeners may be familiar with, um, you know, a couple months ago, there were a bunch of really um, c- uh, concerned headlines about how, uh, you know, a Chinese disinformation campaign on social media had used generative AI to, um, you know, mislead people about, uh, I believe it was the Maui wildfires that were then ongoing, and particularly around the US response to the wildfires. But the case in question was a crappy low rent meme that got, you know, barely any attention on social media. Um, It was generated by, you know, some generative AI tools, but it didn't achieve reach. And so I think when we talk about the ability to um, push back against 
um, AI-enabled disinformation to counter it and to ensure the integrity of online information, particularly during elections, um, it means resourcing those same sorts of mechanisms that social media platforms and civil society have developed to counter those sorts of false information narratives, to make sure that they're identified, that the spread of this information is stopped on social media platforms, and to make sure that people are resourced with uh, accurate and trustworthy and reliable information about what's happening in their particular contexts. Now, wait a minute. You're being sensible. Uh, you're <laughs> describing things the way they should be. And we know that's not the case, right? So we know that disinformation is going to be a bigger issue in the coming year. And we know that, for example, the United States government ought to do something about it. And many people have testified before the Congress and spoken to the executive branch about the need to do this. But in the United States, disinformation means something to people on the right that it doesn't mean to people on the left. And people on the right who felt that it was wrong um, for uh, web-based platforms to, for example, I don't know, use science in their interpretation of COVID, um, uh, you know, feel uh, that, uh, you know, campaigns on disinformation target them. And so they don't want to fund them. And so we know that the next year is going to be a bigger crisis in the United States. And yet, we also know that we are not preparing for it. Yeah, that's real. And it's, I mean, it's a problem. Well, being sensible is one problem. And what you've laid out is, is an even more serious one. I mean, I think, you know, there's a couple of things here that I, I'd, um, I'd raise. I think um, one point that, that really complicates this picture, that makes it even worse, is that the tech sector is perhaps less prepared than ever to respond to these sorts of problems. I mean, we've seen an incredible range of layoffs on many of the major platforms over the past year, um, often targeting those very teams that could actually be prepared to reduce the, the spread of false and misleading information about elections. And so one very concrete action item here that um, we can uh, uh, push even absent action on, on the sort of government level is for companies to reinvest in those functions to make sure that they're prepared for this escalation of potentially false and misleading information fueled by generative AI products. Uh, it's a responsibility and it's incumbent on these companies to, to reinvest in their trust and safety teams and other teams um, fighting this. Now, I also, you know, David, you can uh, uh, challenge my optimism here. But I, I do think we're seeing that the US government and um, the European Union as well are really seeing this crisis with somewhat clear eyes. Um, and we've seen you know, an incredibly uh, uh, fast-moving push um, to introduce some efforts at, at the executive uh, level here in the US. Um, obviously, there's a lot of caveats um, here about what uh, the executive branch can accomplish without the Congress moving um, in simultaneously. Um, but I do ha have some hope um, that we're seeing sort of leadership from the Biden administration on this front. Well, yeah, you have an executive order. That's a great thing. Um, I would say, and I'm you know, I don't want to be cynical. I'm very supportive of the fact that they came up with a 180-page executive order. Uh, but like 75% of it is, we did this on the internet, we better do this with AI. You know, it's kind of fighting the last war. It's not, it's not dealing with this. And you know, as I do, and this is kind of off the subject of what you're, you're, you're doing, that, you know, depending on where you are in the U.S. government, if you say AI, it means something different. 
right? If you go to the Defense Department, it's replicator, it's autonomous weapons platforms. And uh, they, of course, have an obsession with the singularity, you know, the world destroying event, um, you know, of AI, because that's kind of what they think about. If you go to State Department, they think more about disinformation. And I've had conversations with Tony Blinken about this kind of thing. Different places have different concerns. Makes perfect sense. Makes it harder to have a coherent policy. Let me ask you as a last question, and I think we're obviously going to have to invite you guys back because this is just too interesting. But let me start with you, Ali. Picking up on Keon's point, we're recording this on a Thursday. There's an AI summit current taking place currently in London. Um, uh, they have, uh, you know, promised safe AI for the world, um, which you know, I guess you would expect them to promise. I mean, I don't know what that means, and uh, and you know, again, we're such early days that you know they they mean you know safe AI, you know compared, you know, based on month number four of chatbot GPT and not, you know, et cetera. Uh, what do you think of it? Like, what do you, what do you think of that summit? Is it a photo op or is there more to it? Uh, I'm trying to decide which hat I want to put on the optimist or the <laughs> pessimist. Or well, the- Keon, Keon has just said he's the optimist. So, you know, go get, why don't you put on the pessimist? <laughs> you know, I think it's both. I think it's both. Um, I think that, you know, this is a huge issue on people's minds. And I think it's really great that some in government, I'm not going to put governments are massive, as we all know, not everybody in government is, I think, super effective, also depending which government I'm talking about. Um, so I think it's it's really genuine. And they, uh, they not, by the way, that line, not everybody in government is super effective. I, you can stick with that one. That'll that'll, that'll work for. <laughs> I think that's really evergreen. I'll, uh, you can make yeah, the title of the podcast. Um, but I think it's both, right? Like I do think there's genuine interest. We've spoken with a lot of people within the U.S., throughout Europe, within you know different countries for governments in the global majority that are genuinely grappling with what to do and have good intentions about how to do it. Um, and then there's some also that I think you know it is in a government's benefit to be a leader on this, uh, in that space. And one of the things that like, you know, is on my mind when we talk about regulating AI and all these pushes, um, I think it's great. And I think obviously we call for regulating AI, but so many of the solutions that we think are actually going to work are just longstanding things we've been calling for, for years that can be in, that can regulate AI or just general, the broader internet space. So take a data privacy law. The U.S. still doesn't have one. We had a bipartisan one during the last Congress that, you know, we advocated for, a bunch of civil society groups did. We thought it was our best chance of getting something through, and it fell apart. Uh, You know, look at what the Digital Services Act is going through implementation across the European Union right now. There's a lot within that. It's not labeled an AI act, you know, like the EU's AI act, but there's a lot in there that is tackling a lot of these AI concerns, algorithmic amplification recommendation systems, increased transparency. So there are so many other levers that I do worry that when, you know, so much of the zeitgeist is on AI, we need something new. We forget about all this other stuff we've made progress on that is actually going to be really effective at some of these concerns. Um, So it, it, 
I don't know if I answered your question, but it's the shift of focus that I get a little concerned about that we call about in the report of like, don't forget about all. Well, look, I, I live in Washington. Nobody ever yeah. answers your question, right? I ask the question, you you give the answer that I want to hear, but that you want to hear. But, but you know, I, I would say just one thing as a correlator to this and as somebody who's been sort of immersed in AI for longer than you can imagine and is writing a book about it now. I find a lot of people focus on AI qua AI, right? And they don't focus on the consequences. And, you know, I liken it to the Industrial Revolution. The beginning of the Industrial Revolution, James Watt invents the steam engine, and a lot of the steam engines blow up. So people say, well, we should regulate the steam engines so they don't blow up. They don't say, we're going to have a problem with climate crisis in 200 years. And they don't say, oh, this could end the agrarian system as we know it, and we're going to have a civil war between industrial states and agrarian states as a consequence of that, um, because the models change or the revolutions of 1848, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't look at the second. So if AI is going to eliminate a lot of jobs or it's going to increase inequality in society, that could have much bigger effects than some of the direct effects of, 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 of how, how safe or unsafe, um, uh, you know, the, the software are, or how biased the algorithms are. In any event, this conversation could go on and on. You guys are great. You're smart. It's fun to talk to you about it. And if, you, and, and if you'll tolerate it, I'd love it if we can invite you back to continue the conversation. David, invite us whenever. We love geeking out on this stuff. Uh, our colleagues are probably sick of hearing from us. So we'll do it with you and, and your listeners. Well, it's our, it's our pleasure. Let, well, thank you. And our our listeners are geeks, and they they we, they have been geeks for. I, we've been doing this podcast for eight years, and there are just ends up being more and more of them. So there, there's a there's a geek community out there that wants to do the deep dives, and that's okay. just what we're going to do. So geeks get it done. Yeah. Well, exactly. Um, uh, thank you, Allie. Thank you, Kian. Thank you, everybody, for uh, listening. Uh, we'll be back with more of this. In fact, tomorrow we're doing a podcast. Um, as, it, as it happens, on the president's executive order on AI. So we will go and do a deep dive on that. So if you like this, come back for that. Uh, until then, um, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.